Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. My name is Alvaro Casovello, and today I will interview Professor Ricardo Di Salvatore to discuss his book, Disciplinary Conquest, U.S. Scholars in South America, 1900-1945, published by Duke University Press in 2016. Ricardo Salvatore is plenary professor at Universidad Torcuato de Itela in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Professor Salvatore, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Hello, uh, welcome. It's a pleasure for me to uh, talk to you and to your audience this morning. Thank you. Thank you so much. So as it, as it is usual here at the New Books Network, I wanted to start off by asking you about your own biography and intellectual trajectory. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what do you consider to be your both your academic training and your intellectual influences? Well, I studied uh, economics uh, at the University of Cordoba in Argentina, and then I pursued a doctorate degree at the University of Texas in Austin. I graduated in 1987. While doing uh, graduate studies, I started taking courses in history, uh, although I, you know, I graduated with a PhD in economics, and I was particularly interested in Latin American history. Uh, in the 1990s, I was a, a fellow and postdoc visiting professor in various uh, U.S. universities and institutes, uh, in particular at the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton in eight, 1989, I believe. I came into contact with uh, postmodern theory, uh, questions about essentialism and the construction of the Orient and so on. And so I, I came to learn the first traces of post-colonial theory. I read Said's uh, Imperial uh, Orientalism. Uh, then I spent some time at Yale and Harvard as uh, either a fellow or visiting professor. And there I, I, I did uh, some uh, teaching and, and research. And I used these opportunities to read uh, sources there at the archives. Uh, I read at Yale, uh, the, the archives of Hiram Bingham, and I read at Harvard, the archives of Clarence Herring, and uh, this uh, started me into this project. Uh, before going to Princeton, uh, I have read Foucault in Argentina, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, my first professional paper was on the birth of the prison in Argentina, uh, and much later, already into, you know, halfway into the project of uh, disciplinary conquest, I, I, I read uh, Bruno Latour and it just opened to me a new, a new avenue for thinking. And so just, just to follow up on, on that question, how do you think, so disciplinary conquest is about U.S. scholars and vision in South America in the early 20th century. So how do you think that your own experience as a Latin American 
who spend a substantial amount of time in the U.S. sort of influenced your approach to this topic, influenced uh, sort of perhaps on a more personal level the types of questions that, that you're asking? Uh, yes. Uh, well, my research in U.S. archives and universities was crucial for that. Uh, not only my research on Bingham and Herring and, you know, the Machu Picchu expedition and the beginnings of Hispanic American history at Harvard. But before that, I uh, made a long trip uh, to visit uh, museums and historical societies in, in the northeast coast of the U.S., uh, in places like such as Boston, Baltimore, Philadelphia, uh, searching for representations of Latin America in the USA uh, in the late 19th, 20th, 19th century and early 20th centuries. Uh, and as a result of that, I published my first book, Imágenes de un Imperio, which itself was a, this is a 2006 book, which itself was uh, drafted in first in the form of an article that came in Close Encounters of Empire, an edited volume with it with Gil Joseph and Catherine Legrand. Uh, and and in, the, in that book, there is a, uh, you know, the discovery, so, so, to, so to speak, of uh, first an enormous and systematic process of accumulation of sources in U.S. institutions about Latin America in the first half of the 20th century. And secondly, uh, the discovery that U.S. historians in Latin America took the area or the field, you know, Latin American history, for granted, uh, while Latin Americans continue to do uh, national history. So for us, Latin American studies was not a natural field. It was rather something of a historical creation that uh, needed a further investigation and, and research. Right, right. Precisely. So the sort of the your approach to Latin American studies as an external observer clearly informed or at least denaturalized the 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 concept itself and, and and opened doors for you to to historicize the subject. That's 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 fascinating. So one of the one of the theses advanced in the book is that there there are certain disciplinary interventions made by five U.S. scholars that you follow in your book, and you mentioned some of some of them already. Hiram Bingham uh, was one of, one of them. Clarence Herring was another one. And you said that these disciplinary interventions were instrumental to U.S. hegemony as an imperial power. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this latter term, hegemony, and whether you see hegemony as a connecting topic of your previous work, uh, I should tell the audience that you have worked extensively on caudillismo, on on what you called wandering paisanos, and uh, in the law in in the law in on in nineteenth century and particularly late nineteenth century Argentina, as you mentioned, also the prison system. Uh, so, how how would you call disciplinary disciplinary conquest a sort of a, a variation in hegemony from studying the the hegemonic power of the nation state? in nineteenth century Argentina to study the hegemonic construction of an empire? Would that characterization be fair at all? Uh yes, I think it is it is fair. Uh I have been always interested in questions of domination, subordination and hegemony uh, since my early work on criminology and prison reform in Argentina 
I, I was interested in, in hegemony and how the you know leading experts of the elite construct the criminal classes. Then I moved to the study of uh, peasant state relations in mid 19th century Argentina. And out of that came my book Wandering Paisano of 2003. Uh, and then I moved, as, as you notice, uh, to the study of representations and cultural forms and later to, you know, imperial knowledge or imperial uh, interventions of knowledge within the U.S. informal empire in the 20th century. And, uh, and this, are, uh, you know, came into one book in Spanish, Imágenes de un Imperio, and another more recent in English, Disciplinary Conquest. Uh, the difference between the study of peasants and the state in 19th century Argentina and that of, uh, you know, representations and knowledge in the building of U.S. hegemony in Latin America Apart from the question of the scale, you know, the passage from nationalist state-making to hemispheric uh, cultural and knowledge relations is one of focus and methodology. Um, in my early studies of peasants, I dealt with fragments of subaltern lives, uh, and hence I have to follow methods uh, suggested by the subaltern history school, uh, in my study in informal empire, I studied from the gays, uh, histories and textual productions of imperial agents from the north. Uh, that is, I focus on, on, on those who were educated and powerful, and particular experts, academics. Uh, so yes, you're right. I, you know, I move from looking at uh, domination and hegemony. Uh, the level of national state formation, and then uh, to uh, examining questions of hemispheric uh, hegemony. Uh, but, uh, and, and yes, there could be there, uh, you know, a common theme or a common preoccupation uh, along uh, the years, uh, because I, I consider, like, you know, questions of power, domination, and hegemony are, are very important. Uh, uh, now, I, I should tell you, I'm back to studying 19th century Argentina. I have uh, recently published and I'm working on questions of state violence uh, during the Rosas dictatorship and, and questions of, uh, back to questions of positive criminology and uh, the construction of the dangerous classes. And this has to do because I'm back to Argentina and, and travel less to the U.S. now. So one of, one of the other interventions you make in the book is that you, you displace the, the birth date of Latin American studies in U.S. academia. You, you offer an alternative history of the origins of Latin American studies. And you move away from the Cold War and you go back to the years of the dollar diplomacy and the good neighbor diplomacy. So And, and you do so using a variety of sources. And one of the ways in which you engage uh, in the book was by following the lives of these five U.S. traveling scholars, Hiram Bingham, an archaeologist, Leo S. Rowe, a political scientist, Isaiah Bowman, a geographer, Edward A. Ross, a sociologist, and Clarence H. Herring, a historian. So I wanted to ask you, what, what do you see as the uniting threads of the lives of, of these five men? Well, they're, they're, all of them are academics uh, in, in some capacity or another. 
but what 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 other connecting aspects you, do you see uniting their lives and, and their work to to actually sort of bring them together in your book? Well, uh, yeah, you asked me about you know the common elements that, uh, of these five scholars. Uh, I think the, the first uh, reply would be that uh, they all entered into this. Uh, uh, great uh, curiosity about uh, rediscovering Latin America, better understanding the region, uh, and as they considered it, it was you know not very well known, or at least not you know uh, understood by in, in a scientific way. Uh, so I would say that first curiosity, and then uh, a will to know. Uh, motivated uh, these all these scholars to uh, spend time and and, and and develop generalizations and specific studies about Latin America in the early 20th century. This uh, at a certain time became sufficiently widespread. You know the studies or the information coming out of this area as to produce many scientific panoramas about the region. Uh, and, and, and this is uh, reflecting in the way they talk about Latin America. Um, they talk of Latin America as being or South America, which was the, the principal object of inquiry, as terra incognita, as a, you know, an unknown land, as if it hasn't been you know, traced or mapped by previous scholars. And they see themselves as rediscoverers of a subcontinent, which is very curious. Yeah. And I, I mentioned in you know, a few passages how you know uh, Isaiah Bowman uh, saw again, you know, the the, uh, uh, the 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 desert of Atacama and uh, and certain features, uh, and and how uh, Haramingen considered himself, you know, the as, as a second Pizarro. So there are all these uh, self-identifications uh, with, uh, you know, second discoverers. And, uh, and so they, the curiosity and, 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 uh, and the will to know united uh, these efforts. Then uh, there was this series of activities that, Put them together, they probably cross paths in, you know, in their universities, at conferences, you know, they read each other's publications. And so um, these were the activities that uh, characterized the building of the subdisciplines that later made or constituted the field of Latin American studies. Uh, and, and so they'll develop a series of institutions and programs that uh, gives transcendence to gave transcendence to their work. Uh, for example, the American Geographical Society journals like the uh, Hispanic American Historical Review and others. Uh, and, and so uh, there are, you know, this curiosity and this institutional settings uh, made them uh, connect to each other and at the same time connect to the preoccupations of the, the state, uh, state department. And, and you're right, you, all these activities and efforts 
belong uh, to the period 1906-1945 rather than to the post-1959 Cuban Revolution. Right. So I, I a quick follow-up on that is that do you see this man as being exponent of a particular social class? Uh, for example, you mentioned how uh, Hiram Bingham after went on and became a senator, if if I remember correctly from the book. And uh, some of them you mentioned uh, that envisioned themselves as sort of gentlemanly scholars. So in, in the way that to a certain extent the conquistadors sort of belong to a, uh, to a sort of lower sort of uh, class of uh, Hidalgos in, in Iberia. Do you see the second conquistadors as belonging to, uh, to, to the same social class? Well, they probably belonged, you know, to an um, uh, educated uh, middle class in America. And uh, since they were very successful in their professions, Hiram was an international known man. Um, uh, the same as uh, as Isaiah Bowman, uh, and so uh, they, they all were working prestigious institutions and and achieve uh, you know a, a sociability that probably connected them you know uh, middle class experts uh, with uh, people in power or the uh, higher classes in America. Uh, but uh, but their work does not represent the view of a particular social class. Uh, I, I would say that they write and as experts that are trying to uh, understand better a continent. So they have more of a kind of ascription to the professional class. So I think that one of the most powerful uh, aspects of your book, along the lines of what you're describing, is that it's not a simplistic narrative. And, and you show both how some of these disciplinary interventions were contested on the ground by peoples in the Americas, but also by, by this, some of the scholars themselves who at least offered caveats to the, to the way that American business interests or the U.S. State Department sort of uh, established priorities in terms of the construction of uh, hemispheric hegemony in the Americas. So uh, could you talk to the listeners a little bit more about this tensions both on the ground and at the center. And to a certain extent, do you think that uh, American domestic policy, U.S. domestic policy in this very momentous time in the U.S., uh, sort of after the First World War, then with the Great Depression, how, how did that influence the, the, the work of your five traveling scholars? Uh, the vision of U.S. scholars was uh, more complex and at times uh, ambivalent and even contradictory with early works than those of U.S. diplomats and business travelers uh, to Latin America. Business travelers were interested in the diversity that is in the internal differences within the subcontinent and within regions uh, in a nation, uh, yet they provided a sort of catalog description of the countries and an inventory of resources, natural resources and population, and popular costumes, uh, um, costumbres, must uh, be And many of them look specifically at the question of consumer power and, and the consumer, whereas diplomats usually have a 
conversations uh, with Latin American statesmen and reach rapid and general conclusions about uh, you know issues such as government, law, economic development, national debt, or American investments. They built um, more slogans about what had to be done, like you know, mutual understanding, useful knowledge, uh, uh, intellectual cooperation. They were sort of slogans. Uh, they they were not. I mean, the diplomats were not inclined for a deep understanding or a study of the region. In my case, uh, Leo Rowe, the director of the Pan American Union and the only political scientist in my study, is perhaps the exception. He was a diplomat and a scholar, and uh, and, and, and and perhaps there, there are other cases of, of that combination of expertise. Uh, but the scholars uh, that I study that went to South America in the early 20th century to better understand the region uh, were attentive to regional and local differences, uh, to country peculiarities, yet more importantly, their gaze or their vision was informed by certain presuppositions that they carried from their formative education, uh, they carried to South America, most of them, a kind of progressive ideology that led them to criticize social inequalities, uh, local elite perceptions, and what they call the Hispanic heritage. So you're right, on the ground, uh, they pose new questions uh, whose answers may uh, even contradict, you know, the established uh, consensus among business leaders and the State Department. Uh, yes, I think that the construction of Latin America as a field for intervention uh, for U.S. capital, technology, and expert advice uh, were, in general, more contested and more conflictive process than we usually tend to think. So, so what, one thing you just mentioned in your answer is sort of the influence of the progressive ideas uh, in in these intellectuals, uh, sort of drawing from the the progressive movement in in the U.S. politics and particularly also in in U.S. intellectuals at the time. So, do do you see a, a, a move away from the dollar diplomacy of in, in the early period towards a more sort of state-sponsored projection of soft power by mechanisms of cooperation in the, lay, in, in the late 1930s and, and early 40s? Uh, yes, these are the scholars who discovered this question of, 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 uh, of uh, Latin American distrust, which was a form of anti-Americanism. They, they call it Latin American distrust. And they discovered it early in the century, let's say in the 1910s, um, and uh, some of them, uh, like Clarence Herring, did a whole tour in 1926 uh, to uh, make inquiries about this issue of anti-Americanism, and he made a list of all the of all the uh, uh, you know mm -hmm. anti-imperialist leagues and all the anti-American intellectuals in Latin America, and and this was a, a preoccupation that had to do. So they discovered that. Uh, South Americans were elites were uncomfortable with uh, U.S. policies in uh, the uh, in Central America and the Caribbean, 
and that uh, and it was uh, soon enough uh, some of these scholars started to write against U.S. interventions in Nicaragua. The other wanted to change uh, the uh, Monroe Doctrine to become a multilateral kind of uh, policy. Uh, there are many signs that these scholars were shifting away from dollar diplomacy and towards a, a more uh, multilateral and differential approach to U.S. Uh, US relations in Latin America. So you just you just gave me a perfect segue into my following question, which is one of the one of the interventions or arguments you advance in the book is the idea of the creation of smaller divergences within Latin American studies, and you characterize I think uh, very very well that one of the most notorious differences uh, elaborated by these scholars in the in the early twentieth century is the divergence between South American studies, quote-unquote, and Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. And so within South American studies, the, there was your, some of your scholars were proponents of what you call ABC exceptionalism, or the idea that the prospects shown by the so-called ABC republics, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, and by extension, Uruguay, were were really different than uh, other countries in, in Latin America, and they were particularly enamored of democratic democratic advancement in these ABC republics during the first third of the 20th century. So I wanted to ask you, how did these scholars react when, in the 1930s in particular, a series of military coups sort of ended precipitously uh, and rather almost simultaneously democracy in, in all of these republics, Uh, were they completely uh, sort of disillusioned or did they envision other mechanisms to actually reinvigorate democracy in these regions? Uh, yeah, so this is a good question. I'm not sure that this is well answered in my book. Uh, I, I have pieces of, that, of the answer to that question, but not a comprehensive uh, answer. Uh, yes, I argue that uh, this collective knowledge enterprise uh, produced an enduring division in the field. I call this uh, the great divide in my book, that South America was different than Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean, and that in turn, uh, South America itself uh, was divided into a bunch of progressive nations in the southern cone, the, as you mentioned, the ABC powers, and the other group of backward nations in the Andean region, like Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador. Uh, this solid construction was put uh, in doubt by the series of coup, the coups that uh, followed uh, the 1929 crash in New York. Uh, I have not identified the change in all the scholars about uh, this particular peculiar moment in the history of Latin America, as I should have. Um, but I, I, I did uh, follow the, the writings of Clarence Herring, who, because he was a sort of informant for the Council of Foreign Relations, he wrote a series of, uh, of uh, papers and articles on the political changes in Latin America during these early years of the 1930s. And he was very worried about this, and this contradicted what he was, had been saying 
Uh, and also, uh, it is clear that Bowman, uh, the geographer, was quite worried about uh, Nazi infiltration in South America. Um, other scholars uh, that I examined did not write much about this, uh, about the early 30s and the Kurds. Uh, my view is that these scholars, judging for what Herring wrote, uh, took these uh, uh, disturbances as, as a temporary deviation from the historical trajectory that would, uh, would come to an end and uh, go back to the path. And that, uh, you know, Southern Cone exceptionalism continued after the recovery uh, after the end of the recession, uh, 1935, 1937 for some other countries. In fact, this is remarkable how little attention these scholars devoted to the new political authoritarian regimes in Argentina, Brazil, and Mexico. I mean, Vargas, Perón, Cardenas. Uh, perhaps I didn't look quite closely at the, this issue or should have studied the work of other U.S. scholars, uh, but uh, Leo Rowe, which was the main man, I mean, he was the director of the Pan-American Union and uh, the key man in U.S.-Latin American relations, until the end of this, his life in 1945, he was a very enthusiastic uh, believer uh, in the, you know, what he called development of democracy in the continent and in the pioneering role of, you know, the ABC nations even though we all know that, you know, Perón came to power, you know, in this particular end, ending years of his life. Right, right. So that's, that's fascinating how they, they, they grappled with that sort of seeming contradiction. So one, one, of, the, one of these ABC republics is uh, Brazil. And I wanted to devote a couple of minutes to Brazil. Uh, among among the, the, the five scholars you, you mentioned in your work, it seems that only Clarence Herring thought extensively about Brazil. And the, the characterization of, of South America they seem to offer, with the exception perhaps of Herring's work, appears uh, very Spanish-American. And I wanted to ask you if, if this was true at all uh, in, in general and whether they, they were collapsing Brazil and Luso-America uh, within Spanish America, and that they used Spanish America and, and Hispanic customs, as, as, as you mentioned, as sort of shorthand for everything Iberian and, to a certain extent, pre-modern. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, perhaps by the selection of uh, the scholars uh, I made, uh, Brazil appears less in, into the picture. Uh, in Bowman, for example, uh, in Bowman's geography, uh, Bowman's uh, geography handbook, uh, uh, Brazil appears uh, prominently as a frontier agricultural society. And uh, later on, when Bowman comes back to the study of agricultural frontiers in the world, he puts, uh, you know, the Mato Grosso as a, as a prominent area. Uh, for hearing, uh, the Brazilian Empire uh, appears as a less interest in his work. I mean, he was I think he's published uh, his, this book about the Brazilian Empire after retiring. Um, so my idea is that Brazil entered into Latin American studies quite lately, perhaps in the late 20s and early 30s. I have, I, 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 I'm just guessing, I, I, I know that some 
that is a time when the some universities hired uh, Brazilian historians. Um, uh, but in many of these writings, Brazil continued to be a kind of undeveloped country, the land of the future. So they, they, they were trying to map also Brazil, but I'm afraid that Brazilian studies uh, took longer time to develop and integrate into Latin American uh, studies. And so I guess uh, to, to acquire a critical mass that it, it has today, it, it, it was a phenomenon of the 40s and, and the 50s, uh, I guess. Uh, the, the U.S. Had, had a long interest in Brazil, uh, and, but I think it is in the, in the 40s when they invite uh, Freire and, uh, and other scholars to, to talk about Brazil in the U.S., Interestingly enough, your 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 answer sort of puts us towards the the more standard time in which uh, we we tend to think about the the rise of of Latin American studies in the context of of, of the late fifties and the Cold War and the sort of the rise of also other area studies. So I wanted to to ask you which are the which are the connecting which is the connective tissue which are the connecting topics between the early iterations of uh, Latin American studies that you work on in your in, in your book and the later uh, more standard narrative that that we know about Latin American uh, studies and the uh, in the context of, of other area studies. Well, as you know, my book stopped at 1945, approximately. Uh, later on in the 1960s, uh, the reasons for studying uh, Latin America changed. Uh, there was the imperative of development, uh, you know, financial and technological aid from the Truman era onwards. Uh, then there was the fear of an impending social revolution spreading through the region. And there was also better and more solid and more dense institutionalization of the field of Latin American studies. Uh, to the extent that the new book by Tenorio Trillo, uh, the uh, Latin America, the allure and power of an idea, uh, uh, calls this uh, this idea of Latin America in the 60s the textbook version of Latin America, uh, a, a little ironically. Um, and so the idealization of, you know, peasants, indigenous peoples, and the revolutionary potential of the Latin American masses of workers and students uh, perhaps damaged many of the subtleties and differences built by the early uh, builders of Latin American studies uh, before this uh, the 1959. Uh, Latin America became the land of uh, redemption for, you know, the failure of, you know, bringing equality in capitalist U.S. society, uh, so this uh, view that I consider uh, rather, you know, romantic or erroneous uh, was not there in the early efforts to rediscover uh, the region. Uh, but this is only a speculation, and perhaps, uh, you know, the readers or your audience should consult uh, Berger's study under Northern Eyes, which uh, gives a, a wonderful 
description of how Latin American turned to be, Latin American studies turned to be after the Cuban Revolution. Uh, so uh, the, the audience should trust uh, more Berger than my intuition mm-hmm. about how the field changed uh, in, in the second uh, period. Perhaps, perhaps both books should read in, should be read in conversation. Yes, with I each guess other. so. Yes, I agree with it. Professor Salvatore, thank you so much for your time and for this conversation. Uh, thank you, thank you, Alvaro, and uh, good morning to, to to all the audience. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, to talk to you. The book we discussed was Ricardo D. Salvatore's Disciplinary Conquest: U.S. Scholars in South America, 1900-1945 published by Duke University Press in 2016. Special thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Radio Studios in Baltimore. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the New Book Networks on your favorite platforms or listen to our podcasts by going to newbooksnetwork.com. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and see you next time.